Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, may I welcome you to University College London, um, where I have the great honour and pleasure of being Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities, of which Greek and Latin is a magnificent, fine and perfectly formed uh, department within the faculty. Today is an auspicious day, not just because we are here to listen to Miriam's inaugural lecture and to um, uh, celebrate her promotion to a personal chair at UCL. It's auspicious because it is the first day of May, and you have brought with you, by coming to UCL, that wonderful weather that we have been missing for so long. So we are already grateful to you before the evening has even got underway. Inaugural lectures are lovely occasions um, because they are a chance to celebrate an individual's career and to think about their scholarship and to hear what they uh, do their research into and also to see whether they can do the impossible, which is to take extremely complicated and difficult subjects and make them accessible for their friends and their families uh, and also, at the same time, impress and amaze their colleagues by their erudition, wit, and altogether genius. We are going to hear that, I'm sure, this evening from Miriam, who uh, will be uh, speaking, but not yet, because I am only the warm-up act to the warm-up act. Before Miriam speaks, Maria Wyke, the current uh, soon-to-be-ex-head of uh, the Department of Greek and Latin, will deliver a short Hugo Chavez-style oration in praise of Miriam. Then Miriam will be allowed to get a word or two in uh, for about 45 minutes or so. And then at the end of proceedings, Charles Martindale, who is... Um, my opposite number, perhaps I could call him, at the University of Bristol will uh, give a vote of thanks. And after that, we are allowed drinks, which will take place in the South Cloisters, um, so down the stairs and head north. And you are all very welcome uh, to join us there and um, celebrate this evening. Thank you very much, Maria. Well, as head of the Department of Greek and Latin, I would like to thank you all very much indeed for coming to join us this evening to celebrate the promotion of Miriam Leonard to a UCL professorship. Um, I think um, you would agree that this is a rather special occasion. Uh, customarily for an academic, at least in the arts and humanities, anywhere between 15 and 20 years or even more can pass between submitting your PhD and becoming a professor, if indeed you do ever become one. But Miriam has achieved that transition in just 10 years. It is really quite magnificent, I think, that UCL has been able to acknowledge what we have known all along, that Miriam Leonard is an exceptional academic. Miriam was first an undergraduate and then a PhD student at Newnham College, Cambridge. Ten years ago, she obtained a lectureship at the University of Bristol while still finishing her thesis. And five years ago, she arrived at UCL. Over those years, Miriam has produced a whole series of ambitious, innovative and influential studies, whether monographs, edited collections or articles, that hold as their core concern the place of Greek literature in the modern history of ideas, whether those ideas are literary, philosophical, political or theoretical. Her analyses of how modern thinkers have pursued and shaped their intellectual agendas by way of classical thought have required fearless engagements with um, grandees that always terrify me, uh, such as Marx, Nietzsche and Freud, Lacan, Derrida and Foucault, Loro, Sixou and Irigare, to name just a few, and briefly to acknowledge that I could have listed many more. Inflected by critical theory, her studies have made and are making substantial interventions both in the modern history of ideas and in the field of the reception of antiquity. 
classicists in particular owe her a great debt for putting on display how firmly antiquity is embedded in the history of Western thought since the Enlightenment. Miriam has also won a whole host of research prizes or research awards, whether from the universities of Cambridge, Bristol, Stanford or Duke, the Leverhulme Trust or the British Academy. She's also a truly international scholar with strong intellectual ties outside the UK, both in France and in the US. And her interest in academic collaboration is really exemplary, exemplary, as well as offering testimony to the ease and generosity with which she works with others. And I'm sure that this inaugural is a sellout, partly because it is stuffed with Miriam's co-authors, co-editors, and various other research collaborators, as well as her students. I'm sure that our ever-expanding community of postgraduates would like me to take this opportunity to thank Miriam for the extraordinary work she puts into supporting them in their studies. And on behalf of the department, I would also like to thank her for her tireless contribution to supporting our staff and inspiring our undergraduates and thus sustaining the department as a thriving and friendly community. In the brief time that I've had to introduce Miriam, I've barely been able to skim over just some of the reasons we are, why we are so proud to have her as a member of the Department of Greek and Latin. So I give you now Professor Leonard, who is speaking on the theme of tragedy and modernity. Can you hear me? Is this okay? Yes. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Maria and Henry, for your generous introductions and to Felicity, who helped organise this event so well. And thank you all so much for coming. Many of you know how surprised I am to be standing here today, but I'm incredibly touched and grateful that so many of you have come, many of you from some distance, to be here. I'd like to thank my head of departments, Chris Carey and Maria White, and all my other colleagues in the department who've been so supportive to me since I arrived at UCL. UCL has always been an institution whose values I've admired from the outside, but my experience of working here over the last few years and getting to know my colleagues has really made it a place I love. I want to thank my family and my friends, my teachers, my colleagues, my students who are all here. In particular, I wanted to mention my former PhD supervisor, Simon Goldhill, who has been a great inspiration to me, and Charles Martindale, who is, as, was my head of department in my first job at Bristol and who's generally agreed to say a few words at the end. Okay, enough with the thanks. I'm going to start with a film clip, assuming it works. <laughs> changes a man's idea of himself. Three major blows dealt us in our body. Before Copernicus, we thought we were the center of the universe, that all the heavenly bodies revolved around our Earth. But the great astronomer shattered that conceit, and we were forced to admit our planet is but one of many who swing around the sun. But there are other systems beyond our solar system myriad worlds. Before Charles Darwin, man believed he was a species unto himself, separate and apart from the animal kingdom. But the great biologist made us see that our physical organism is the product of a vast evolutionary process whose laws are no different for us than for any other form of animal life. Before Sigmund Freud, man believed that what he said and did were the products of his conscious will alone. The great psychologist demonstrated the existence of another part of our mind, which functions in darkest secrecy and can even rule our lives. This is the story of Freud's descent into a region almost as black as hell itself, man's unconscious, and how he let in the light. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Okay, so um, the clip comes from the opening of a 1962 film about Freud starring Montgomery Clift. It was directed by John Huston, and the original script was actually written by Jean-Paul Sartre, by the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. The voiceover at the very beginning of the film paraphrases Freud's famous account from, from his introductory lectures to psychoanalysis about the three so-called narcissistic blows that have been inflicted on humanity. The first blow to what Freud calls the naive self-love of man was orchestrated by Copernicus, who made us realise that our Earth was, quote, not the centre of the universe, but only a tiny fragment of a cosmic system, scarcely sorry, a cosmic system of scarcely imaginable vastness. The second blow came with Darwin, who destroyed man's supposedly privileged place in creation. The third was what Freud, and what Freud calls the most wounding blow, was dealt by Freud himself, who revealed how the ego is not a master in his own home. These three narcissistic wounds together constitute the experience of modernity. As the voiceover makes clear at the very beginning of the film, they are the abyss which separates us from ancient times. The, the ruptures in the fabric of humanity, which call into question the very concept of a trans-historical human nature, and thus, in the process, make the ancients feel irredeemably alien to us. But unlike the film's version, which describes a linear evolution from ancient times to the alienation of modernity, Freud's own account in the introductory lectures is not predicated on this chasm between antiquity and modernity. Speaking of the cosmological blow, Freud claims, and I quote, this is associated in our minds with the name of Copernicus, though something similar had already been asserted by Alexandrian science. In a later reworking of this passage, Freud pushes the discovery back still further to the Pythagoreans and declares, even the greatest discovery of Copernicus, therefore, had already been made before him. Freud folds the pre-existence of cosmological theories in antiquity back into his general thesis about the vulnerability of mankind's self-love. Even Copernicus was not master in his own home, just as modernity is not capable of keeping out the intrusion of antiquity. Now, beyond the evident irony of Freud's statements about the demise of narcissism being expressed in a passage brimming with his own narcissism, there are a number of things about Freud's proclamation which are notable. Freud's confidence in the ability of powerful ideas to shape the world Sorry, Freud um, is striking. More specifically, what I find appealing from my particular perspective is the view he expresses that ancient ideas through their modern reception and reinterpretation can continually return to shape the world anew. Pythagoras, an Alexandrian cosmologist, may already have intuited the Copernican revolution, but it is only when Copernicus resuscitated this idea that the paradigm shift truly occurred and the true revolutionary nature of the ancient cosmologists could be appreciated. Since my doctoral work, I've been trying to understand the various ways, I, how, sorry, the various ways ideas from antiquity can change our idea of modernity, and conversely, how modernity has itself shaped and reshaped the idea of antiquity. In my work, I've more often not, not been concerned with ideas in general, but with rather abstract ideas. Abstract ideas whose purchase on the world can sometimes seem quite remote. The appeal of Freud's passage to me is his ability to show how theoretical debates and conceptualizations can have effects in the so-called real world. With some justification, Freud believes that his theories about the human mind have actually played a transformative role in the lived experience of modernity. My work on the role of antiquity in post-war French thought more recently, my book about the 19th century conflict between Hellenism and Hebraism attempted to address this intersection between symbolic structures and concrete political realities, between intellectual debates about the nature of the subject or the question of reason, for instance, and such pressing political issues as the extension of citizenship rights to the Jews or the treatment of political prisoners in a democracy. The other aspect of Freud's argument that resonates with my work is the spotlight he shines on the ability of ideas from the ancient world to unsettle a particular account of human nature. Rather than a conventional image of antiquity functioning, as it were, as a kind of pre-lapsarian state before the advent of secularism, capitalism and individualism, Freud presents us with an ancient world already questioning the status of the human being. 
His antiquity is not then mobilised as a form of comforting humanism, which could act as a bedrock for the alienation of the modern condition. Conversely, however, as many others have pointed out, Freud's frequent references to literature and philosophy um, of the classical world humanises scientific discourse and guard against extreme relativism. It is, in fact, this ability of antiquity to both challenge a certain unreflective humanism in modern thought and simultaneously provide insulation from a nihilistic assault on human values, which has often concerned me in my work. My current project on the role of tragedy within modernity is an attempt to understand this dialectic between humanism and nihilism, and Freud plays an important part in that. The book I'm writing studies the formulation of the so-called philosophy of the tragic in Schelling, Hegel and Hölderlin at the start of the 19th century and its impact on the later tragic philosophies of Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, Benjamin and Heidegger. My contention is that tragedy became in this period a privileged way of talking about the modern condition. Modernity is, of course, a notoriously intractable concept. Nevertheless, the philosophical engagement with tragedy brings to the fore a series of recurring anxieties, a concern with freedom and the limits of agency, the paradox between historical rupture and continuity, the promise and betrayal of the political, and the interrelationship between gender and sexuality. I'm arguing that to be a modern subject, whether in our experience of gender, in our attitude to the past, or in our sense of political agency, is to be a tragic subject. But in order to do this, I have to look at a two-way process. On the one hand, I want to investigate how an engagement with tragedy defines some of the central preoccupations of modernity. And on the other, I would like to show how modernity has changed the meaning of these ancient plays for us and drawn out their philosophical significance. Modern philosophers offer us a different way of looking at Greek tragedy, which, while not advocating an unthinking universalism, moves beyond historicist readings which focus on specific performance practices in Athens or, civic, or the civic ideology of 5th century Greek democracy. So, for instance, when Schelling argues that tragedy illustrates a conflict between freedom and necessity, he gives us a vocabulary to talk about Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannus as a commentary on questions of subjectivity, and the limits of agency. Or to take a different example, the Marxist reading of alienation can make us think differently about the failure of politics in the tragedy of Antigone. In my lecture today, I want to give you a snapshot of this recent work, concentrating on the figure of Oedipus, and in particular, his representation in Freud. Copernicus and his ancient forebearers are not the only instance in Freud's writing where antiquity and modernity are fused. The agent most often associated with the wound that Freud supposedly inflicted on our narcissistic illusions is Oedipus. Freud elects, as an ancient figure, elects an ancient figure to deal the blow which is most constitutive of our modernity. In choosing Oedipus, Freud shows us how the intrusion of an ancient figure into our modern lives can make us feel like we are no longer masters in our own home. Since the publication of Peter Rudnitsky's Freud and Oedipus in the late 80s, there's been a great deal of interest in the question of what led Freud to choose Oedipus as the figurehead of the new science of psychoanalysis. As my UCL colleague Rachel Borby, Richard Armstrong and others have shown more recently, not only did the Oedipus complex come to be considered the core insight of psychoanalytic theory, but the figure of Oedipus became an icon of psychoanalysis itself. An image of Oedipus and the Sphinx even acted as a logo of the official press of the psychoanalytic movement. Oedipus is the brand on which the success and the failure of psychoanalysis rests. Despite the fact that the Oedipus complex as such only enters Freud's analytical lexicon after 1910, the entire edifice of psychoanalysis is retrospectively found on Freud's discovery of his infantile Oedipal desires. The first mention that Freud makes of Oedipus appears in a letter he wrote to Fleece in 1897. Here the play is mentioned in the context of Freud's revelation of his own feelings towards his mother and father. The letter provides the evidence for the autobiographical foundation of Freud's investment in the myth. But for most critics, Freud's fascination with the Sophoclean myth can be traced back further to his school days and to the performances of the plays which he witnessed in Paris and Vienna at a formative moment in his training. This is an image from a production of Oedipus starring Jean Moulet-Sully, which Freud is believed to have seen in Paris 
and which Fiona McIntosh has written about so insightfully. The question, sorry, okay. the question which has insistently confronted critics is how to reconcile the idiosyncrasy of Freud's infantile desires with the statement of the universal validity of the Oedipus complex that we find in Freud. This problem of universalization is already at the core of his letter to Fleece. Remember the first mention Freud makes. I have found in my own case, too, the phenomenon of being in love with my mother, jealous of my father, Freud writes, and I now consider it a universal event in childhood. In the interpretation of dreams, on the other hand, it is his own experience which is sidelined in favour of an appeal to Sophocles as evidence for the generalised quality of certain dreams and their relation to childhood psychology. The discovery is confirmed in a legend that has come down to us from classical antiquity, he writes, a legend whose profound and universal power to move can only be understood if the hypotheses I have put forward in regard to the psychology of children has an equally universal validity. What I have in mind is the legend of King Oedipus and Sophocles' drama which bears his name. A great deal has been written about the vicious circularity of Freud's argument in this passage. Oedipus's fate is assumed through its antiquity and continuing appeal to a modern audience to have a paradigmatic quality, which in turn acts as evidence for the universal truth of Freud's insight into childhood psychology. Because Freud has an Oedipus complex, and Oedipus's story comes down to us from an ancient legend which still has the power to move us today, it must be the case that we're all afflicted by the same complex, he writes. Given Freud's conviction of the universal, sorry, the universal applicability of the myth, it is not surprising that the complex becomes the so-called nuclear core of psychoanalysis. Freud's later hypothesis in Totem and Taboo that the Oedipus myth has its basis in an actual historical event is merely an extension of this argument about the universality of the complex. Those critics who've been keen to establish the biographical basis of his Oedipus have highlighted the subjectiveness of Freud's infantile desires. Their emphasis on the specificity of Freud's journey towards Oedipus could not be more at odds with Freud's proclamations about the universality of the complex. The background of German Philhellenism, the so-called tyranny of Greece over the German imagination, has repeatedly been drawn upon to reconcile Freud's seemingly unique biographical predispositions to the wider cultural currents of his age. Indeed, a dual focus on biography and intellectual history has been a stated aim of recent studies of Freud and his relationship to antiquity. In broad terms, these argue that the cultural obsession with Greece at this time became the vehicle of Oedipus's universalization. Freud's acculturation in a humanistische Gymnasium, his immersion in a classically, inspi in classically inspired Bildung, his transposition of the philological techniques of Altertumswissenschaft to the theory of psychoanalysis, all played a role in his choice of Oedipus as a paradigmatic figure. Classical antiquity is the hinge that connects the particularities of Freud's self-analysis to his grand ambition to create a universally applicable theory of humanity. But there remains a specificity to Freud's insistence on the universality of Oedipus, which I think gets lost in this broader picture. Beyond German Philhellenism, sorry, German Philhellenism, a specific history of reading tragedy within this tradition offers a better way of understanding the resonance of Freud's universalism. At a general level, the classics may well be the medium through which Freud elevates his personal experiences to the analysis of humanity writ large, but, in it, but it is the 19th century philosophical reading of tragedy which provides the conceptual apparatus for the reconciliation between subjectivity and universalism, which is at the heart of Freud's reading of Oedipus. For Sigmund Freud, writing an interpretation of dreams, the starting point of any analysis of Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannus has to be an attempt to understand why the modern playgoer can receive this play in the same way as his ancient predecessor. If Oedipus, sorry, if Oedipus Rex moves a modern audience no less powerfully than it did the contemporary Greek one, Freud writes, the explanation can only be that its effect does not lie in the contrast between destiny and human will, but it is to be looked for in the particular nature of the material on which that contrast is exemplified. Yet the majority of classical scholarship in the second half of the 20th century has been devoted to precisely the opposite pursuit. 
It wants to show how radically different the modern audience is from the political, cultural and religious expectations of its 5th century Athenian counterpart. While Freud is struck by sameness, classical scholarship insists on difference. Nor have classical scholars been alone in rejecting Freud's perceived assertion about the universalism of tragedy. George Steiner, for instance, claims that we are living in the age of the death of tragedy. For him, there exists an insurmountable chasm that separates us from the tragic age of the Greeks. But Freud's peroration, Oedipus's destiny moves us only because it might have been our own, does not emerge from a vacuum. He was building on a much longer tradition that linked the identity of the modern subject to the fate of the tragic protagonist. Since the close of the 18th century and the emergence of the so-called philosophy of the tragic, the question of tragedy had moved from the aesthetic to the metaphysical realm. As Vasilis Lambropoulos writes about the tragic, since the 1790s, this quality has been attributed to every domain, feature, and function known to mankind, from life to cosmos, from culture to society. The term has entered the vocabulary of existence and experience, description and evaluation, high reflection and common argument. It has been broadly present in the major systems of thought, art and scholarship during the 19th and 20th centuries. The reason for this changing perception are complex. The turn to aesthetics in post-Kantian philosophy, the birth of philology as a historicist discipline, and the role of the French Revolution in the re-evaluation of tragedy as a historical and political experience are all contributory factors. The figure of Oedipus has played a crucial role in this development. By the time Freud came to his own analysis of tragedy, for well over a century, philosophers have been proclaiming that we were all Oedipus. Ever since the German idealist philosopher Schelling had made Oedipus the central plank of his discussion of the tension between freedom and necessity in his letters on dogmatism and criticism in 1795, Oedipus had become what Lacoulabart has called a figure in and a figure of philosophy. If Schelling found his reaction to to Kantian metaphysics on the conflict between fate and free will in Oedipus, It is perhaps Hegel who most clearly ties Oedipus's quest to the project of philosophy as a whole. In his philosophy of history, Hegel places Oedipus at the threshold of Oriental wisdom and European self-consciousness. He writes, In the Egyptian niece, truth is still a problem. The Greek Apollo is its solution. His utterance is, Man, know thyself. In this dictum is not intended a self-recognition that regards the specialities of one's own weaknesses and defects. It is not the individual that is admonished to become acquainted with his own idiosyncrasy, but humanity in general is summoned to self-knowledge. This mandate was given to the Greeks, and in the Greek spirit, humanity exhibits itself in its clear and developed form. Wonderfully, then, must the Greek legend surprise us, which relates that the Sphinx, the great Egyptian symbol, appeared in Thebes, uttering the words, what is it that which in the morning goes on four legs at midday on two and in the evening on three? Oedipus, giving the solution man, precipitated the sphinx from the rock. The solution and the liberation of that oriental spirit which in Egypt had advanced so far as to propose the problem is certainly this, that the inner being of nature is thought which has its existence only in human consciousness. So that's Hegel's representation of Oedipus. The quest for self-knowledge, so familiar from the Freudian reading, is already intimated in the Hegelian scenario. And yet it is almost as if Hegel was anticipating the Freudian reading when he warns, in this dictum is not intended a self-recognition that regards the specialities of one's own weaknesses and defects. It is not the individual that is admonished to become acquainted with his own idiosyncrasy, but humanity in general is summoned to self-knowledge. Freud, in an important way, particularises the general human imperative towards self-consciousness, which Hegel exhorts. Nevertheless, when Hegel makes Oedipus synonymous with human identity, a human identity predicated on self-knowledge, he turns him into a figure ripe for appropriation by Freud. Freud's identity in Hegel rests on his universality. That is, he is constituted by his ability to identify mankind in general. 
Moreover, it is interesting that it is this image of Oedipus, the Oedipus in his encounter with the Sphinx, whose iconography surrounded Freud and the institution of psychoanalysis more generally. Freud owned many images of Oedipus and the Sphinx, such as the well-known Athenian red figure Hydria, which is in the Freud Museum in London. Um, but the greatest prominence was given to the neoclassical image of Oedipus painted by Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres which was hanging over the couch in his consulting room. As Armstrong suggests, Ang's painting is evocative of many things that one can readily associate with the ambitions of psychoanalysis. And the overt sexualization of the encounter, together with the depiction of female monstrosity, would certainly be amongst them. But what interests me is that in, this, in his choice of this neoclassical depiction, Freud is choosing a, an image of Oedipus um, which is saying something particular about his philosophical legacy. By choosing this image of Oedipus rather than the more obvious Freudian-seeming figure one finds in a painting like Gustave Moreau's, Freud upholds the association between Oedipus and the quest for human enlightenment, which we see in Hegel's description. And gives a visual identity to Hegel's Oedipus in his moment of liberation from the Oriental spirit far from being the victim of irrational, incestuous, parricidal desires, Oedipus in this image emerges as a figure in and of philosophy. It is this depiction of Oedipus which Freud's students decided to present him with on a medallion, sorry, on a medallion for his 50th birthday. This image, which Freud used as a book plate for his collection, and as I mentioned earlier, this image, which became the logo of the Internationale Psychoanalytische Verlag, so the, sorry, the, um, the official logo of the psychoanalytic press. If Oedipus, sorry, if Oedipus becomes the icon of psychoanalysis, the icon that psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis chooses to associate him with has very little to do with the complex that bears his name. And yet it is a conflict between Oedipus the philosopher and Oedipus as parencest which seems to structure Freud's discussion of Sophocles' play in the interpretation of dreams. For Freud's demonstration of the universality of Oedipus hinges precisely on a debate about his conflicting identity. Freud introduces his own reading of the play by undermining the validity of previous readings. Oedipus Rex is what is known as a tragedy of destiny, he writes. Its tragic effect is, to, is to said to lie in the contrast between the supreme will of the gods and the vain attempts of mankind to escape the evil that threatens them. The lesson which it is said the deeply moved spectator should learn from tragedy is submission to divine will and realisation of his own impotence. Modern dramatists have accordingly tried to achieve a similar tragic effect by weaving the same contrast into a plot invented by themselves, but the spectators have looked on unmoved with a cure or an oracle, sorry, while a cure or an oracle was fulfilled in spite of all the efforts of some innocent man. Later tragedies of destiny have failed in their effect. When Freud characterizes Oedipus as a tragedy of destiny, he is drawing directly on the philosophical tradition that we've been exploring. For both Schelling and Hegel, Oedipus's fate arises from a confrontation between freedom and necessity. Schelling's ingenious reading turns on his ability to make of Oedipus's impotence in the face of fate a triumph of human will over destiny. Despite Hegel's strong emphasis in, in the passage I read on the ability of Oedipus to overcome his fate through the assertion of his human command of reason, he nevertheless later acknowledged the limitation of Oedipus's triumph and locates his tragedy precisely in the, from, sorry, the confrontation of these two realities. Neither Schelling nor Hegel subscribed in any simple way to the lesson which Freud claims the tragedy of destiny is supposed to convey. But it was the philosophy of the tragic developed in German idealism which turned Oedipus into the tragedy of destiny par excellence. And it is this reading that Freud sees himself overturning. So he writes later in the interpretation of dreams. This is a passage we just mentioned. If the Oedipus Rex is capable of moving a modern playgoer, a reader or playgoer, no less powerfully than it moved the contemporary Greek ones, the only possible explanation is the effect of the Greek tragedy does not depend upon the conflict between fate and human will, but upon the peculiar nature of the material by which this conflict is revealed. 
There must be a voice within us which is prepared to acknowledge the compelling power of fate in the Oedipus, while we can dismiss as merely arbitrary such dispositions as are laid down in Kölpaz's The Anfrau or in modern tragedies of destiny. And there actually is a motif of the story of King Oedipus which explains the verdict of his inner voice. His fate moves us only because it might have been our own, because the oracle laid upon us before our birth the very curse which rested upon him. It may be that we are all destined to direct our first sexual impulses toward our mothers and our first impulses of hatred and violence towards our fathers. As Armstrong has argued, Freud's rhetoric in this passage is based on his ability to discredit former allegorical, or I would say philosophical, readings of the play. Part of Freud's intransigent argument of the Oedipus complex is simply to affirm the literal nature of the myth reading. It really is a tale of incest and parasite, nothing more, nothing less. Freud, in this passage, found an alternative humanism to the one which lies behind Schelling's and Hegel's reading. For Schelling and Hegel, Oedipus represents man in general because he uses his reason, his all-too-human reason, to confront a destiny which he cannot escape. The humanism of Freud's Oedipus is located in his irrational desires. We, are, we were all destined to direct our first sexual impulses towards our mothers and our first impulses of hatred and violence towards our fathers. Freud rejects the contents of the philosophical reading of Oedipus, but maintains its form. He casts off the Oedipus of reason, but he reinscribes the universalism of his fate. The universalizing of Oedipus in Freud's narrative is the trace of an earlier philosophy of the tragic, which he ostensibly tries to, to displace. This is all the more striking given that the practice and theory of psychoanalysis is so obviously concerned with the idiosyncrasies and specificities of an individual's life story, the very idiosyncrasies that Hegel rejects in his characterization of Oedipal's self-knowledge. Moreover, even though he rejects the idea of a tragedy of destiny, Freud's whole analysis is nevertheless dependent on the idea of a human being being subjected to a destiny beyond his control. His fate moves us only because it might have been our own, because the oracle laid upon us before our birth the very curse which rested upon him. Despite his protestations, Freud escapes neither the vocabulary nor the ideology of destiny which lies behind the philosophy of the tragic. Freud's universal, irrational, parencestic Oedipus could thus be characterised as the ironic mirror image of the universal Oedipus of philosophy. But Freud's persistent theorization of Oedipus as a figure of science should not be forgotten. The medallion which was offered to Freud on his 50th birthday was inscribed with a quotation from Sophocles' Oedipus Theranus. Here, it's more obvious on the book plate version, and I'll read it to you in translation. Who knew the famous riddles and was a man most mighty? So it's a quotation from Sophocles' Oedipus Theranus. Ernest Jones, in his biography, recounts how Freud became pale and agitated as if he had encountered a revenant when he received this medallion. As a young student, he writes, at the University of Vienna, Freud used to stroll around the great arcaded court inspecting the busts of former professors of the institution. He then had a fantasy not merely of seeing his own bust there in the future, which would not have been anything remarkable in an ambitious student, take note, students, but of being inscribed with the identical words he now saw on the medallion. This anecdote serves as a psychoanalytic parable which immerses us in the problem of Freud's identification with Oedipus, writes Rudnitsky. But it is the double nature of Freud's identification which is so interesting. The Oedipus that Freud appropriates is simultaneously the continuation and the inversion of the Oedipus of the philosophical tradition which emerged in the wake of the Enlightenment. Freud's Oedipus, in his multiple guises, is testimony to the persistence of a humanism and a universalism which has its origins in the philosophy of the tragic. It would, of course, be wrong to characterise the modern philosophical investment in Greek tragedy as a project which is in any way straightforwardly committed to revealing the universalism of tragedy. A dialectic between sameness and difference an interplay between antiquity and modernity had been inscribed in this philosophy of the tragic from the start. From Hegel's engagement with Antigone as an exemplification of the historical developments of spirit to Holderlin's assertion that Greek art is foreign to us, 
The German he uses is fremd. The so-called idealist looks at tragedy to understand the distance as much as the proximity of antiquity. Nietzsche may have advocated an aesthetic revival of tragedy, but that didn't prevent him from affirming one does not learn from the Greeks, their manner is too foreign to us, that same German word, fremd. If the philosophy of modernity from Hegel to Freud has been bound up with the idea of the, of the tragic, this relationship has not been constructed on a simple model of identity or identification. Indeed, even Freud's claim that Sophocles compel us, again I quote, to recognise our own inner minds in which those same impulses, though repressed, are still to be found. He still insists that the discovery of our inner Oedipus involves an uncomfortable confrontation with the fremd, the strangeness within ourselves that is presumably why we repress it. Hegel may have proclaimed, among the Greeks, we find ourselves immediately at home, but it was the tragedy that modernity has termed to come face to face with the unheimliche as much as the heimliche. It is the uncanny Oedipus who stands behind Freud's assertion that the ego is not a master in its own home. In Freud's Oedipus, we can see how both these aspects of tragedy come together. We find the universalism of human reason depicted in Oedipus's encounter with the Sphinx rubbing shoulders with the dark alienation of our unconscious, murderous and incestuous desires. These two aspects of Freud Oedipus are never fully reconciled in his writings. You get a sense of this broader ambivalence running through Freud's work, even from the opening voiceover from the film with which I began. It proclaims, this is the story of Freud's descent into a region almost as black as hell itself, man's unconscious and how he let in the light. Once again, the film is elliptically alluding to a prominent ancient reference in Freud. The quotation from Book 7 of Virgil's Aeneid, which he'd placed on the title page of the Interpretation of Dreams. I'll read the translation. If I cannot bend the will of the higher powers, I will move hell. But this imagery of darkness and light also recalls the constant play on blindness and insight, which we find in Sophocles' play, and its modern philosophical reception. Freud both confronts us with the hell of our unconscious and provides the light which will make our living hell more bearable. It is in Nietzsche, rather than Freud, that we get a more explicit account of how the two facets of Oedipus's symbolism might be understood together. Nietzsche writes in The Birth of Tragedy, Oedipus, murderer of his father, husband of his mother, Oedipus, the solver of the Sphinx riddle. What does this trinity of fateful deeds tell us? There is an ancient popular belief, particularly in Persia, that a wise magician can only born, be born out of incest. The riddle-solving Oedipus who woos his mother immediately leads us to interpret this as meaning that some enormous events against nature must have been occurred to supply the cause. How else could nature be forced to reveal its secrets other than by the victorious resistance to her. I see this insight expressed in the terrible trinity of Oedipus's fates. The same man who solves the riddle of nature, that of the double-natured sphinx, must also destroy the most sacred orders of nature by murdering his father and becoming his mother's husband. Wisdom, the mist seems to whisper to us, and Dionysiac wisdom in particular, is an unnatural abomination. Whoever plunges nature into the abyss of destruction by what he knows must in turn experience the dissolution of nature in his own person. Wisdom is an offence against nature, Nietzsche affirms. Don't take notes, students. <laughs> the different aspects of Oedipus's trifold fate are intimately connected. His incest and his murder are both the cause and effect of the power of his reason. His destruction, then, is a self-destruction brought about by the very faculty which had made him a saviour both to himself and to mankind in general. But for Nietzsche, tragic poetry has the force to reconcile us to the experience of our own dissolution. Sophoclean melodies, as he calls them, make tragedies glimpse onto the destruction of the self seem bearable. It becomes plain, Nietzsche writes, that the poet's whole interpretation of the story is nothing other than one of those images of light held out to, to us by healing nature after we've gazed into the abyss. Like Freud, who shines a redemptive light into the hell of the unconscious, Sophocles shines a shaft of sunlight onto the abyss of tragic destiny. 
Both Freud and Nietzsche present us with an anti-humanist Oedipus, but both nevertheless resist the nihilistic interpretation of his tragedy. Through their respective uses of tragedy, Freud and Nietzsche reject a humanist reading of antiquity, but return to its text to understand something about the status of the human being. Both use antiquity to simultaneously relativise the experience of modernity and to universalise it. They reanimate ancient figures to unsettle the experience of modern subjectivity, but they also retroject onto antiquity the very alienation that they detect as a symptom of modernity. Just as Freud demonstrates that the Copernican revolution was already at work within antiquity, Nietzsche presents us with an Oedipus who had already become a critic of Enlightenment reason. In both, we detect what Nietzsche will call the untimely and what Shakespeare's Hamlet describes as time out of joint. Just as the haunting present of antiquity deals a narcissistic blow to the self-love of modernity, modernity continually calls into question the temporal boundaries of antiquity. As Jacques Derrida phrased it, the new is not so much that which occurs for the first time, but the very ancient dimension which recurs in the very modern. Freud's Oedipus is perhaps the most famous, if not notorious, example of the reception of Greek literature in modern European thought. As I think that UCL is the only classics department to have the word reception in the title of one of its professors, I thought I might conclude with a few words about what I see as my remit, or perhaps much more dauntingly, my responsibility in this role. The field of classical reception has grown exponentially in the last decade, thanks in large part to the outstanding writings of many of the people in the room here today, whose advice and support I've profited from enormously over the years. But what do I see as the benefits, the classics and the broader humanities of this development? In his recent book on Victorian culture, classics, Simon Goldhill draws on Charles Martindale's insight that meaning comes into being over time. For all our love of epiphany, Goldhill writes, meaning takes time. Freud knew this. It took the interval between antiquity and the Renaissance for the full meaning of Alexandrian cosmology to come to light, just as it took the interval between the Renaissance and the 20th century for Copernicus and the ancient cosmologists to come to mean what they did for Freud. This is one reason why classical reception is valuable to the humanities. Classicists, by their nature, are equipped to exploring meaning across the longue durée, the distance of antiquity, the centuries that separate us from the classical world, make it impossible not to see the creation of meaning as ongoing and ever-evolving. Meaning takes place in time, sorry, it takes time, but also takes place in time. No assigning of meaning to, to a text or an idea from the past can take place outside its context or its own temporality. Freud's Oedipus may parade his modernity, but he only makes more explicit what is true of all interpretations of the past, that they are sorry, indelibly marked by the time in which they take place. Equally, it is important to acknowledge a less passive element to classical reception. Antiquity, through its many deployments across time, has also changed time. It has pulled time, as it were, out of joint. Antiquity intrudes into the present and functions as a kind of historical unconscious. In my own work, I've been trying to understand how a return to antiquity has allowed certain ideas to become possible at various points in the last 200 years. Just as Hegel's understanding of Greek tragedy shaped his dialectical view of history, so Freud's encounter with Oedipus determined the development of psychoanalysis. In the 18th Brumaire, Marx writes of the French revolutionaries that they needed the example of Rome to raise them from their bourgeois self-satisfaction and keep their passion on the high plane of Greek historic tragedy. Antiquity is not just providing the motivation for the revolutionaries, though the reference to the, through the reference to the genre of tragedy, it is also providing the vocabulary for Marx's revolutionary historical critique. What Marx calls bourgeois self-satisfaction, Freud will rename naive self-love. But for both, antiquity plays a transformative role in challenging the conformity of the contemporary. And if classical reception could help Marx and Freud move beyond self-satisfaction and narcissism, it must surely have the potential to teach the rest of us something. Thank you.
it's a, a, a very great honor and pleasure that I should be allowed to say some words about your new professor. Academics are generally smart people and like to think that when they make good judgments, when they appoint colleagues, even if our procedures appear to many outside the academy as somewhat amateurish and old-fashioned. If I had to point to an example of good judgment in my own department at Bristol, it would be when we gave Miriam Leonard her first job. At the time, it might have seemed an eccentric decision. She was still some way from completing her PhD, and the position was one in Latin literature, where in conventional terms she would have been classified as more Hellenist. Sage voices were raised that it was perhaps too early, but it is never too early to secure exceptional talent. I believe then, and what has happened today confirms the correctness of that belief, that she would develop into one of the foremost and most innovative classicists of her generation. There's another moral to be drawn here, a lesson to be learned both by the young and by the profession generally. Leonard was taking on a tough and demanding job as a lecturer with its full range of duties, where most of her more talented compares moved into much easier halcyon lives as JRFs and the like. But there is an old saying, you need a job done, find a busy man or a busy woman. And it is Leonard who has achieved more and has today been inaugurated as your professor at an unusually young age as a consequence. Miriam Leonard's field of expertise would now most commonly be described as reception, a word that is used to describe a vast range of work, of varying character and very varying quality. Although I myself wrote a book recommending a reflection-inflected approach to classics, I am becoming increasingly dubious about the utility of the word. However, for better or worse, what gets called reception is currently the fastest growing area of classics, at least in the Anglophone world. It produces some of the best, as well as some of the worst and most amateurish work in the discipline. <laughs> Leonard's is the very best. If I were asked to select five pieces of work by five different scholars to illustrate the value and intellectual importance of classical reception studies, I would certainly include something by Miriam Leonard. She has the time-honoured linguistic and analytic skills of a classicist, including exceptionally good French and German, vital for her particular area of research, but she also has a range of intellectual interests well outside the norm. Moreover, she is not just a first-rate academic. She is a genuine intellectual with a thirst for ideas and a passionate conviction that these ideas matter beyond the academy as well as within it. Her reception interests focus primarily on the areas of intellectual history, politics in a broad sense, and in general, the relationship of modernity and antiquity. In these, in these fields, she has few peers nationally or internationally and no superiors. Her monograph, Athens and Paris, is a work of great originality, exploring with skill and sophistication the dialogue of antiquity in post-war France. It brings together, for their approach to some key texts of classical antiquity, and puts into fruitful play two groups more usually studied apart. Classical scholars such as Vernon and Vidal-Naquet, and thinkers such as Derrida, Foucault, Rigoré, and Lacan, who are commonly treated as exponents of theory, another word often lazily used that may have passed its sell-by date. Athens and Paris has none of the usual characteristics of a first book deriving from a thesis. For example, narrow focus and specialisation. Rather, it reads like the work of a mature scholar who is able to synthesise across a wide range of material. She has chapters on Antigone, Oedipus and Socrates, all of whom became key focal points for questions of ethical choice and political action in post-war France. She addresses large issues of broad significance and articulates a general vision for classics. For many of us, it takes a lifetime to reach such a place. Professor Leonard is a generous collaborator, so it is unsurprising that she is a good editor. She's edited two important collections for OUP's series Classical Presences. The first, in collaboration with her then Bristol colleague Van der Zyko, exploring the relationship between Greek myth and feminism, is entitled Laughing with Medusa. The second, about her favourite modern thinker, Derrida and Antiquity. 
Both collections are genuinely interdisciplinary. Contributors include not only classicists, but such scholars from beyond the classics as the celebrated art historian Griselda Pollock uh, and the theorist from this university, Rachel Bolbeck, and the philosophy Andrew Benjamin. It has always been clear that most of the leading practitioners of critical theory in the Nouvelle Critique had a profound interest in classical antiquity, something unfortunately not true of the majority of their followers. For Leonard, theory is not some sort of toolkit to apply to a text to produce another predictable sacrifice to the great goddess Ref. It is more a mode of critique, as it was for Kant or for Adorno, a way of asking fundamental questions and constantly questioning standard assumptions, taking nothing for granted. It is also a way of making unexpected and fresh connections, reconfiguring what constitutes the field. The results show, in a fully professional manner, credible with all the many disciplines involved, the central importance of classics to the modern world. It reminds us that the study of antiquity more is needed than learning, however broad, and the accumulation of data, however fascinating. To do justice to the achievements of antiquity, which are always of both then and now, we need, in addition, both intellectual imagination and passionate conviction. Our second scholarly monograph, Socrates and the Jews, a Hellenism and Hebraism from Moses Mendelssohn to Sigmund Freud, is now complete and will be published shortly by Chicago. Her interest in German philosophy of the late 18th and 19th centuries is a particularly welcome turn, since thinkers such as Hegel did so much to create modern attitudes to antiquity. While the widespread hostility in the 20th century to things German in consequence of the two world wars has been, some, has been something of a stumbling block in the humanities generally. I suspect that the book will turn out to be even more important than Athens and Paris, partly because of this valuable turn to Germany, but more because the book has a truly great theme which ought to concern anyone interested in the intellectual history of the West a theme which in the period she is treating exercised some of the finest minds of Europe, if sometimes in disquieting forms. The results cast light on antiquity, on the ways it has been mediated, and on ourselves as the heirs to those mediations. And she has exciting plans for the future on tragedy and modernity, classics and enlightenment, classics and the French Revolution, a topic extraordinarily neglected by classicists, given the central importance of classical writings for that revolution, projects of massive reach and potential significance. So, to conclude, we have at least three causes for celebration tonight. First, we must celebrate the splendid achievements of an outstanding scholar in the expectation that achievements as splendid, or yet more splendid, will follow. A, profession, a professorship, be it remembered, is a beginning, not an ending. More in earnest for the, for the future than a reward for the past. Secondly, we can celebrate an inspiration for women classicists in an academy in which there is still too much of a glass ceiling. And here, Professor Leonard has made a stunning demonstration of the virtue of doing good work for its own sake, rather than for instrumental reasons. She has nothing of the careerist about her, but has gained her position simply by following her intellectual calling faithfully and with integrity. And finally, we can celebrate a distinctive way of doing classics. Classics faces, as always, a choice between the pure scholar's insistence on boundaries and the limitation of the subject, and the alternative way by which various antiquities and various modernities are seen as always bound together and interpenetrating each other. I would call this, in my old-fashioned way, the way of the humanist, though the word has perhaps lost its savour, and Leonard will probably not welcome my application of it to her work. But however we name this second model, it alone, in my view, makes it likely that classics will flourish for the next 2,000 years as it has for the last. It is such a classics as a humane and living discipline which remains indispensable to us that Professor Miriam Leonard professes. Thank you.